Hello, this is Dr. Betty Rubinowitz, NextGen Chief Medical Officer and Principal with NextGen Advisors. Welcome to our podcast. Today, we'd like to devote our conversation to the ways in which the foundational characteristics of the Medicaid program contribute to perpetuating existing healthcare access disparities across the U.S. population. These underlying issues are now being further augmented by the inordinate stress that the COVID pandemic has been imposing on the safety net health system, predominantly Medicaid. As usual, I'm joined today by my colleagues, Graham Brown and Dr. Marty Lastig. Welcome, Graham, and welcome, Marty. Hi, Betty. Nice to be with you. Hi, Betty. Thanks. Um, Graham, how about you uh, get us started? Sure, I'd love to. So we know a lot about health disparities that are impact to specific populations in the United States in terms of the challenges with access to care, higher disease burden, which often results in shorter lifespans, and fewer years of good, healthy living for those who uh, end up living without disease. I'd be interested to know from the physician's perspective, based on your own experience in your practice, what you observed Um, in terms of caring for folks with uh, various health disparities? How did that present to you? I'll start. So in my practice, um, I was actually a Kaiser Permanente, which did not serve the Medicaid population directly, but did provide free coverage to people who were uninsured. And what I found, my practice was in the D.C. area. A lot of my patients were immigrants. And what was most striking was the undiagnosed issues that I would see five, six-year-old kids who had had problems since birth that had never been recognized or diagnosed, um, which in the commercially insured populations we never saw. Um, so it really did feel like you were working in, a, in, a, in another country in some regards, uh, aside from the fact that there might be language barriers the, the, the status of these kids, their nutritional status, but more importantly, their medical status was much more uh, complicated because they've gone untreated for years. Betty, you served adults. Was, was that different in your practice? In, in many ways, uh, not, not so different. I think what uh, my experience was that um, uh, patients presented later, sometimes with more advanced illness and uh, more complex uh, problems because of uh, time lag between the appearance of the symptoms and when they were able to get access. And then each step of the, the workup, the diagnostic process, the therapeutic process, putting a plan in place, and then the follow-up and follow-through, making sure that the plan uh, was, was implemented, was challenged by uh, things like transportation, the ability to take uh, time off work where there was no uh, facility to do that or there was a a threat to lose a entry-level job because of taking time off because of the job. And all of the accompanying things, the digital divide, where people were unable to conduct much of this process online. It had to be done uh, in person and and, uh, took more time. There, was a, there were great uh, barriers to, even once patients presented, to getting them the care and the follow through that they needed. I also think that there was a fair amount of mistrust of the health system 
that complicated the, uh, the care of, of uh, patients uh, further. The other side of the mistrust that I experienced was when it fir the first time it happened to me, it was quite striking, but it happened with some regularity that I would see a, a an ethnic minority, most frequently an African-American young family, young, usually young mom. And I would see the kid, even for some relatively minor thing for the first time, and after, at the end of the encounter, the parent would ask, would, would comment to me, I've never had a medical you know, person treat me with respect before. Would you be willing to be my kid's doctor? And what was what's so striking is, is that never in my career happened to me with my non-minority patients. Interesting. Yeah, and I think that there is just a sense of the 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 challenge to uh, be adherent so the uh, missed appointments showing up late for an appointment because the bus was late or your bus doesn't let you out to get to the appointment on time being treated punitively when that happens when you arrive the whole interaction uh, across the health continuum is much more challenging much less friendly much less caring and compassionate in that in that regard and then on the other hand there are environments uh, in which healthcare has been set up in in underserved neighborhoods where uh, this is th that is not the issue there's wonderful trust there's wonderful relationships within the community some of the federally qualified uh, clinics that we at NextGen work with are doing an amazing job of integrating into the communities and gained uh, light years of trust and, 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 and love from the community that they treat, but it's not always the case. So I've got a follow-on question really based on what you've just been saying. Um, you know, there are fundamental differences in terms of the benefit design around what's covered in Medicare, what's covered by commercial insurance products, and then what's covered as the base program in Medicaid and how that then is funded differently and the benefit design differs from state to state. So I'd be interested to know whether in serving patients that had Medicare versus Medicaid or commercial insurance, did the needs of the patients then ultimately change or was the care that you were able to provide them given the benefit design change in any way? So I would comment, first of all, this isn't from my experience as a provider, since I, as a pediatrician, didn't serve the Medicare population, and we didn't have uh, Medicaid for most of uh, my practice. Um, but from a health plan perspective, understanding the benefit differences, I would say that, for example, you know, Medicaid does cover home and community-based services that that neither Medicare nor commercial plans cover. So there is a fundamental recognition in the design of Medicaid that you're dealing with a population that's, uh, in terms of socioeconomic issues, is more vulnerable. So there are some benefits within Medicaid that are specifically targeted uh, to try to help uh, um, mitigate some of those challenges. Interestingly, I think some of the data shows that even if you take a simple uh, item like referral to specialists for the Medicaid population, the challenge is significant because 
of the way Medicaid reimburses clinicians. There are many practices that won't accept Medicaid patients, and I can remember uh, in my time in practice, and some of this may have uh, changed for the better, but I'm sure still there are still discrepancies that exist with the ability to refer patients to specialties like orthopedics, dermatology. Uh, some of the uh, discretionary kind of uh, referrals that had to do with uh, small bothersome problems uh, that would be readily available to somebody with commercial insurance was not available, not so much because of the benefit design directly, but because of the way uh, those services were reimbursed and the inability to find physicians who would, who would care for these patients. Yeah, I would also say that along those lines, Betty, that health plans that are managed care organizations in the Medicaid space, because by definition, Medicaid has very strict limitations on cost sharing. There are basically, for most Medicaid recipients, no co-pays or co-insurance. Um, that the health plan uses prior authorization and referral rules and things like that much more vigorously because they don't have the benefit design as a way to create uh, incentives for different behaviors. Um, and so that creates a whole set of barriers for that population that are much lower for the rest of the insured population. Yeah, I think uh, it's, uh, your point is well taken, Marty. So I actually would like to go a little bit deeper on that. Um, about two-thirds of Medicaid beneficiaries are enrolled in a managed Medicaid plan. Uh, because the states that they live in have contracted with managed care organizations kind of set up and manage the benefit design and the networks of providers in those states. So this might be more of a question for you, Marty, again, from your managed care background. What do you see as the benefits of having managed care organizations serving in this role on behalf of states? So the advantage, if it's done well, I think, is, is that the, um, everything, things are managed more locally instead of directly from the state bureaucracy. So for providers, for example, there's actually the opportunity to work with the health plan, with the, with the managed care organization uh, on how they're paid and uh, the potential to create value-based arrangements and other alternative payment mechanisms so that there's more alignment between the payer and the provider as it relates to dealing with some of the barriers that this population faces. So I think that's the upside. I think there's also probably some upside in that providers uh, pay is more uh, certain and timely than depending on getting a check from the state. Although for, for community health clinics where most of their patients are Medicaid and where they're federally qualified clinics, they have pretty uh, established mechanisms of getting paid by the state. And for them, it's kind of the, uh, the opposite. They have to deal with the challenge of getting paid by health plans and they're not used to that. But for practices that take all different types of coverage um, they're used to dealing with health plans, and so that makes it easier for them. On the other side of it, I do think that um, Medicaid, because of the way the health plans are reimbursed by the states, the payments, the, the amount that's paid to providers is no better than it would be from the state directly. One of the issues that has been brought before the courts are the legality of the 1115 waivers that CMS has approved 
which impose work requirements in, uh, in order to uh, uh, receive Medicaid eligibility. And uh, several states have received approval for or are pursuing these waivers. Work requirement waivers generally require beneficiaries to verify their participation in certain activities such as employment, job search, or job training programs for a certain number of hours per week or verify an exemption to receive or attain Medicaid coverage. Details about the specific number of hours, approved activities, exemptions, reporting process, and populations uh, included vary across states, for example, adults and or low-income parents, age, etc. As a result of uh, this litigation challenging work requirements, three states, Arkansas, Kentucky, and New Hampshire, have had such waivers set aside by the courts. So a two-part question here. What are the impact of these uh, waivers on Medicaid beneficiaries in the affected uh, states? And then we'll get to the question of what uh, do you anticipate the new uh, Biden administration might do regarding these waivers in this context? Graham? So I think the, the short-term implication of these, these waivers that the states have applied for, designed, and got approved by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services is they really put an administrative burden on Medicaid beneficiaries to get access to care. So it kind of, you know, if we think about it from a social disparities perspective or a disparities in healthcare perspective, we already know that there's disparate outcomes for impoverished communities, for people of different racial origins uh, with, with lower education levels and forcing individuals that are impoverished to log into a website to show that they've been looking for work and to do it by a certain date. Um, otherwise they get kicked off Medicaid is really just an additional administrative burden that is putting a lot of pressure on individuals that might not have a computer at home or might not have internet access to continue to be able to get access to healthcare. So I think that there's really a, a disparate uh, impact on these individuals that is punitive in some ways and to that extent that's part of the rationale that the courts have looked at in some of the states where these waivers have been set aside. So I'll stop there. I don't know if Marty has other thoughts of that before we move to the next question. The only thing I think worth pointing out is sort of the historical context. That this is precisely where Medicaid started. I, I hate to admit that I just recently read an article that uh, sort of went through the beginnings of Medicaid, but the original qualification for Medicaid, unlike Medicare, where they just had a flat age requirement, for Medicaid, it was not uh, a... Uh, a flat um, income requirement. You had to be on public assistance in order to qualify. And the rules related to public assistance had for already decades before that, since the New Deal, specifically discriminated against minority populations who tended not to be in the types of situations where they qualified for public assistance, uh, even though they were at those income levels. And so that foundation that was built in 1965, in some ways, was recreated by these waivers more recently, despite the fact that, or maybe as a result, a reaction to the Affordable Care Act, which was attempting to finally solve that problem by setting a single 
bar of income that cuts across as the qualifying factor for Medicaid, no matter what state you're in, no matter what type of work you do. I think there's, there's a couple of things here that stand out to me. One is that if you believe that healthcare is a human, a basic human right, creating a system that a priori uh, requires a yardstick of income, poverty, employment, really kind of undermines that assumption that one way or another, citizens in, in, in a country like ours should have a means of having uh, high quality uh, health care for themselves, their families, their children. So a priori, that, that feels to me as if we built in a, a, a yardstick that was very challenging. The other, the other issue is that once you realize, once you put a yardstick in, you can manipulate it to create a, a bar that almost no one can cross. So if you say you have to be only 5% over uh, the poverty uh, level, or you need to be 200%, it, it immediately creates an ability for, with good intentions, no intentions, or bad intentions, for uh, people to be excluded from the system. And what's happening in the disparities between the different states in the country is just uh, a, an example of that. And uh, my sense, you know, the second part of the question had to do with the, the Biden administration and what, what you think is going to happen. But if the Affordable Care Act is implemented as written, it will probably try and even the criteria that are used across the nation in all 50 states. One of the things that I, you know we've all seen in the last week since the inauguration is a number of executive orders as the um, before the Congress is met to consider new legislation. There's certain activities that can actually be done through executive order, as we know. And one of the things that was announced today was the administration directing the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to look at the waiver system and to reconsider any ones that are inconsistent with the objectives of the program. And that's kind of a fundamental call to action to this to this point to say, if you're designing waivers that are disenfranchising individuals from being able to be eligible or participate in the program, that may be inconsistent with the objective of the program. So that review may very well highlight some of the inconsistencies here across states in terms of access and may ultimately lead to a place where some of those waivers are rescinded or that's uh, that's considered. Time will tell as to whether that's uh, what the recommendations of this panel ultimately uh, put forward. They also, I think, announced that they're going to have uh, open enrollment period for the next three months, two or two or three months to allow people who have recently become unemployed as a result of the pandemic to be able to get on the Medicaid rolls, um, which um, had not been allowed uh, over the last year. Absolutely. I, I think that this is obviously a broad and fascinating topic that we will uh, revisit as uh, time goes by. I would like to thank our listeners today uh, for joining us. If you enjoyed today's discussion, consider subscribing to our podcast. And I'd obviously like to thank uh, Marty and Graham, who always uh, challenge with uh, good questions and 
very informative uh, discussion. So thank you. And uh, this is Dr. Betty Rubinowitz with NextGen Healthcare. Have a great day.